0: there is a lot about our society that needs to change. And, and, you know, that's true for literally everybody. There is, I, I sometimes get people saying, oh, well, you know, you're such a uh, extremist or you're such a, you want all this change. And it's like, who is sitting down in front of me and saying, there's nothing about our society that needs to be changed.
1: Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from servant leaders working to normalize the mental health conversation and increase empathy in business. I'm your host, Adam Baru. I'm pretty excited to announce that we've recently celebrated our one-year anniversary of producing The Change. Thank you so much to all of my guests that have explored some really important topics with me and have opened themselves up so that together we can advance the dialogue around mental health. It's been such a pleasure to speak with all of my guests and to receive all the feedback I've gotten from the many listeners who have reached out. So thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone who has tuned into the change and has helped normalize the conversation around mental health and business. Today's guest is Jay Schiffman. In preparing for this episode, I spent time on his webpage and wanted to start our conversation by reading Jay's bio that he includes on his site. Jay Shiffman is an open book, a vulnerable storyteller and stigma-destroying speaker, podcaster, and event host. Jay's story of struggle is familiar to the millions of people the world over who also struggle with issues of mental health, substance misuse, and addiction. The survivor of two suicide attempts and an overdose and now in long-term recovery, it's Jay's mission to encourage difficult conversations and honest education concerning these and similar struggles. So, Jay, welcome to The Change. And, you know, the reason I wanted to start today's interview by reading your bio is that it really touches on the foundations of this podcast. Vulnerability, uh, breaking down the barriers surrounding, you know, extremely difficult mental health issues. So, you know, I'm, I've been really looking forward to this conversation today. So, so you know, I'm looking forward to just diving right in. Why don't we start with your childhood, which, you know, for many that deal with ADHD is, is where their stories begin. So if you could take us back there and just, you know, kind of tell us, what your childhood was like, and and kind of how how that progressed through your teenage years, and, and ultimately to where you're at today.
0: Well, uh, Adam, first off, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to be here. I know, yeah, we, pleasure. You know, because we 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 connected so far back and had a, had to move this back once. It's been a long time coming, and I'm glad we can uh, finally yeah. sit down and have the conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you know, that is where my story starts. Is when I was diagnosed with ADHD as a preteen. And uh, I am, as we're recording this, I'm 36 years old. And so for me, that was the, the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And mm-hmm. uh, like many people in that generation, uh, I was diagnosed as a preteen. And, and, and to, to put that in perspective for people uh, in, the, in the 80s, when I was born in the mid 80s, the ADHD was around. I mean, we were treating it uh, roughly 300,000 young people in this country were being treated for ADHD uh, by the time I'm uh, diagnosed with, with that particular disorder uh, and begin treatment in the late nineties that had exploded to almost 2 million. So
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, we were in the, the, the generation, the era of just an exponential growth in the treatment of, of ADHD. And, and that isn't to say that all of us were, were misdiagnosed. I mean, I definitely showed the signs I, I, as an adult, I've learned to live with it. And, and as a teen, I struggled with it, uh, mm-hmm. preteen and teen, but what it is sort of the, the, the unintended unintended consequences of this era were, um, as fast as the, uh, uh, uh big pharma was rolling out different medications. They were being given to, to people. And some of those had uh, side effects. Other, of those other, other of those had, uh, effects that were not as, um, easy to tolerate for a young, growing person. Mm -hmm. And for me individually, uh, what that looked like was uh, not only was I struggling with ADHD, but I've also uh, my entire life struggled with depression and anxiety as well as OCD. And, you know, we all remember how difficult uh, the era of puberty can be for for our growth as an individual and our understanding of who we are. And so you sort of take all of this together, and and then throw on top of it these uh, drugs, these 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 uh, medications. Um, and I tried five or so, five or six different medications between the time that I was diagnosed and um, my mid-teens when we landed on the one that was that was worked the best uh, that I stayed with for the next six or seven years. But mm-hmm. um, it really created this perfect storm of of sort of uh, mental health struggle. And and that was the underlying condition of my teenage years.
1: Yeah. So, you know, today you posted for international overdose awareness day, you, you posted a picture of yourself, um, from 12 or so years ago. Um, looked like you just kind of rolled out of a dead, a grateful dead show, which, Hey, I went to many dead shows, so no judgment there. But, uh, you know, you, you talk about, how you survived this overdose um around that time so you know kind of take us to that point in terms of you know where you were at and and just what life was like for you at that time yeah
0: i think your description of that picture was rather kind um <laughs> it it for it, i i am dressed as you'd said like i just rolled out of a dead show however Uh, And I did go to many, both Dead and Fish concerts at the time, many music Mm -hmm. festivals. I, 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 for one summer, lived in my car traveling around following a band from festival to festival. But um, that was how I dressed every day. I mean, there was nothing different about that picture. Uh, And and I think the most shocking thing about that picture, which everybody can find on my LinkedIn, uh, on my median page all over, um, is that uh, I look very sick. Um, and, and I was I mean I was but but that was just my day to day. And my mm-hmm. eyes are only about half open. Uh, not because I think I was especially high when that picture was taken. that was just who I was at that time. So I was not in a good place. Uh, and to get there from where I, we were just talking about, uh, you have to understand that my my therapist who had been seeing at this point for a number of years, uh, sees all of the, the, the effects that are happening in my life again, you know the perfect storm of of struggling with your mental health, uh, of going through puberty and being a teenager, and then being treated with high levels of medication. He sees the side effect uh, side effects of the uh, of this just constant um, struggle that I was living through, and he gave it a name, uh, which was first a mood disorder, and then he, he and then he changed the official diagnosis to bipolar two. Mm-hmm. Now I didn't have bipolar two. What he was seeing again was just this you know conflation of a lot of different factors which he had helped create. Um and so he he gave me more and more medication uh, and by the time I'm 20 21 years old I'm taking five six different medications every day. Mm. Uh, I developed an addiction to one of them uh, and, and was misusing all the all of them and, and again mm-hmm. that's five or six different uh pills that I'm just knocking back every uh, multiple times a day. And uh, my life really bottomed out when I was 22 and 23, uh, which was 2008, 2009. Um, and, and I had lost control of my mental health. I was in a terrible place. Uh, I was using um, both recreational and illicit drugs all day, every day. Uh, and, and they all had reasons, right? I mean, uh, I, I, I think a lot of people like to think of uh, those of us who use drugs, especially those of us who struggle with it, as completely out of control. Like we're just doing this on autopilot right and there was some of that i mean that was the reality of my prescription pill usage at this time but i was smoking a lot of weed because it made me feel better and of course not uh, this is at the same time when medical marijuana is coming into popularity around different states um i was using a lot of hallucinogens because my life was pretty horrible and i wanted to get out of my head a lot um yeah, es- escapism I, did, yeah. I was escaping a lot uh, i did develop an addiction or struggle with an addiction to, to cocaine um, because when you are on as many different drugs as I was uh, and you still want to party there's really only one drug left and that is cocaine mm-hmm. so um, I, this was my day to day and finally in the summer of 2009 uh, I hit a point of hopelessness where I looked around me and was like this is not a life that I want to keep living uh, and because of the state that I was in at that time um, you know, I, I really felt that, that continuing to live was not going to be an option. And my only option mm-hmm. was to, to, to end it. So, uh, I attempted suicide twice. And as we're talking today, on, on international overdose day, uh, I did overdose and, uh, survived that overdose obviously as, as we were sitting here talking.
1: So I, I want to go back a little bit, you know, for people that don't totally get what adhd is um you know can you know can you just take us there and just give us a description give us your description based on your experience of you know i guess if you want to go back to your preteen like maybe the lens through which you would define adhd then versus maybe today it's changed a little bit for you i'm, I'm not sure but you know, that being kind of the, the origin of where all these drugs started to become dis- prescribed to you. It wasn't like you just became a drug user. I mean, this all kind of emanated from just trying to deal with ADHD. So, you know, yeah, take us back there. Give us your kind of description at the time of, of you know, what you thought when you, when you were told you had ADHD and kind of what you think about it today.
0: Yeah, you know, as a teen, as a preteen, when I was first diagnosed, I, it, it wasn't a big deal to me because, um, you know, this was, like I said, an era where so many of my friends were also diagnosed. It was like, oh, you too, you know, welcome to the club kind of thing. Uh, there really wasn't a lot of thinking around it. The, the, the part that really um, stuck out to me the most was that I had, uh, because I was 11, uh, an inability to swallow these horse pills that they were giving me. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my mother finally came up with the genius idea of hiding them in a banana. Uh, and so my teenage years, I mean, for years, I, I had to eat a banana every morning it was the only way I was swallowing these giant pills. Um, that was really the only part that, that was that really stuck out to me. Um, you know, I, I would say how it manifested was that I was very rambunctious. Uh, I, I really struggled in school. Um, I, I, I didn't have the focus or, uh, you know, the desire really to, to pay attention much. Uh, I, I, I lacked a filter. That was, the, I think the thing that people most remember about me from that time is I would say whatever came to mind. And a lot of times that was funny. And a lot of times it wasn't, it was, it was very uh, dangerous. I would say things that I shouldn't have. So that was sort of the, the, the preteen and teenage years. Um, now as an adult, what it means is I, I, I still do not have it in me to put my head down and just work for hours on on end. Like that is not a thing that I can do. What I can do is focus intently for 15 minutes, go to something else, come back. You know, um, perfect example was I I produced a podcast called um, Choose Your Struggle Presents Made It, season Mm -hmm. one, Stay Savage. uh, And that dropped in April of this year. And that was a 10-part documentary on an incredible woman here in Philadelphia by the name of Sarah Laurel. Uh, and her personal recovery from substance misuse and addiction, homelessness, et cetera, and, and how she founded this amazing nonprofit uh, here in Philly. Anyway, I did that whole thing myself from start to finish, all the interviews, all the editing, all the producing, mm-hmm. uh, finding the partners, all of it in, an, in yep. a little under 10 months. And, um, you know, I, I, I worked, I've I worked with other people who've done similar projects and have not done it by themselves. Yeah. And all of them are like, first off, why would you do this by yourself? That's a good question. Uh, But but the the bigger one is, how did you do this? And it's because I cannot just work on one thing at a time. I love Mm -hmm. having nine different goals and sort of, you know, I'm that guy when when I'm playing an open world video game, I'm doing the side quest while doing the main quest because I cannot just focus on one goal. So as an adult, I found a way to work, make it work for me. But it, it was a bit of a struggle when I was younger.
1: So I remember taking some notes when you and I first spoke, and um, you know, I, I, I again I'm trying to be sensitive in how I say this because I I don't deal with ADHD. I don't know what you what people go through. Only just you know what I've been told. But you know, I wrote down some some just thoughts I had around you know. Well, I guess let me start with the first question um, today on August 31st, 2022. Would you look at your ADHD diagnosis as a blessing or a curse? <laughs> there, there's, it makes me think of,
0: uh, there's, there's that Kanye album. Uh, I forget the name of the album, but on the cover it says, I love bipolar, I hate it. Uh, and, and that's sort <laughs> of how I feel about, uh, ADHD. Um, you know, I, I definitely think that in, in, you know, being my own boss and, and and working with other people who are understanding and, and allow me to work in ways that are successful, it is a superpower. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 if the listeners can't see my office, but you can, and there is just stuff everywhere, not like in a pile, you know, on the floor way, but in there's always something to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a coping mechanism. I, I don't do well with blank walls because my brain needs all this stimulus uh, for me to then work well, right? I need I work with podcasts in the background, and I'm I'm that guy who can do my work and also tell you about what the podcast is going on. What am I listening to? Mm-hmm. That is a superpower. Uh, at the same time, it it is in the wrong settings, a, a problem, right? My my yeah. my wife would be the first one to tell you that when we're out to dinner, she would wish that she could count on my full focus and. and you know luckily she loves me very much and we've been together for long enough that she understands that for me to truly be taking in everything she's saying and having the conversation that she wants me to have I'm my eyes are going to be wandering my brain's mm-hmm. going to wander for a little bit I'm going to be you know doing something else with my hands um so that I can focus fully on her uh, and that, you know, is tough sometimes. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the theater. We go mm-hmm. not infrequently. I'm a big fan of live music, as we've talked about. And yet I get pretty bored when I'm there because it's only one thing happening, right? Mm-hmm. I've said before, if I could go watch an NBA basketball game that also above the court had a concert going on, I'd be <laughs> in heaven, man. That would be the best thing in the world. Yeah. Um, so it is definitely difficult at times.
1: So, you know what, I guess the next question is, do you think there's a way for the medical establishment to change their perspective on ADHD to to perhaps be more of a guide counseling people that that, you know, are going through those behaviors where, you know, just prescribing all these stimulants isn't really the first go-to. I mean, where the, the the medical establishment can say, hey, you know what, there's so many successful people that live with this. And so, you know, here here's kind of some things that you're going to run into. And this is kind of how your brain might operate sometimes. But there's a place. I mean, there's, you know, I, an, another set of notes I took when we were speaking last is, um, around people that enter into, like, a lot of creative jobs that kind of have this multitasking, just brain, you know, firing all the time. So, you know, I, I guess that's kind of two questions I just asked. Number one is, you know, where do you see the medical establishment today and kind of how they're treating ADHD? And the, the second part of it is, you know, just kind of the overall society, you know, looking at, you know, all the great positive qualities that people AD, people that have ADHD are equipped to just deal with certain types of problems and, and solving, you know, those types of problems and and just you know the creativity inspired by that.
0: I think the medical part is tough because our medical system. I mean, we could do a whole show on what is wrong with our medical system, especially as it relates to to uh, medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't. And by the way, I do not put that completely at the feet of of doctors. I think that insurance companies share a lot of the blame mm-hmm. i think that God. our government shares a lot i mean there's a lot wrong there the story i like to tell is uh i think a great example of, of all of this in concert um i got a buddy who at the time uh, had a had a seven-year-old son and uh he asked me to lunch and we sat down and and, and he said look you know, they want to put my, my, my son on, on medication for ADHD. And I know your experience and would just love to hear your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so we talked through it for a while. Obviously, you know, not a doctor. So it wasn't making a medical recommendation, but just more about a lifestyle one. And after our conversation, and, and again, remember, I was put on medication at 11. His son would have been seven, which is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um. It, it, that that's not my medical take. That's just my human take. Of seven is too. If the if it's not a life or death thing, seven is too young for any long term medication. I mean, yeah. I, That's just yeah. how I feel. So after our conversation, he he takes this information and, and decides to not put his son on on medication, and instead he switches his son to a different school that yeah. is more accommodating of a child with more rambunctious energy and. Um, doesn't make them just sit at a desk and stare forward eight hours a day, right? And, and and caters to the creative child. And his son is thriving. I mean, he's doing a, a having a great life now. And this Amazing. is this is four or five years later. Yeah. So. That is a giant privilege that my friend had the ability to switch schools, right? To work with teachers at the new school and say, what are we going to do to to help my son, right? They had a partner that could they could trade off and, 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 and do this yes. tag team and do this, right? I mean, these are all, it made him incredibly rare that he had all of this going for him. However, it worked and his son's doing great. And and I, I am scared to think of what would have happened if he didn't have a partner who, who could help him out. Right. Or if he didn't have a school choice opportunity or uh, if he didn't have the money to switch him out of school and go somewhere else. Right. It, 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 that is one of the biggest factors. I mean, you, you, you take any of those away and medication probably would have been the move. Right. So yeah. it. it, it goes beyond the medical establishment into how number one how we educate i mean our school system there's a a, an incredible i think you and i might have talked about this last time but there's an incredible article called the uh the drugging of the american boy i think is what it's called and uh it basically lays out how instead of changing our education system we have just exploded this diagnosis of adhd uh, and, and for those who don't think that this is still a problem uh, remember that number I gave you earlier of two million well it's now over four and a half million so it just continues to grow so um you know there, there are other ways uh, but there is a lot about our society that needs to change and and you know that's true for literally everybody there is I, I sometimes get people saying oh well you know you're such a what uh, extremist or you're such a you want all this change and it's like Who is sitting down in front of me and saying there's nothing about our society that needs to be changed? I'm honestly asking (laughs) if you think everything is firing on all cylinders. Where are you living? And I want to move there because it ain't happening around me.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I'm seeing that we're definitely, you know, and the pandemic may have played a part in this. But I think based on what I've seen, that there is more. Adoption of change um, that people aren't so averse to, you know, pointing out things in society and not doing anything about it, you know, and and probably a lot of that's inspired by millennials and Gen Z. And, you know, so it makes me really, really excited about those generations because Mm -hmm. I think. I think they get it. And I, th- I think, you know, you know, when they kind of come into a position of, of being the majority, I, I think there's a lot of optimism that I have for, you know, a lot of good that, that could happen and social issues and other environmental issues, obviously. But you mentioned the drugging of the American boy. That was a great segue because that was kind of where I wanted to go to next. I want to start by, um, you know, reading, you know, on Esquire, which is where this article is published. Um, You know, the very top of the article starts with with this statement. By the time they reach high school, nearly 20% of all American boys will be diagnosed with ADHD. Millions of those boys will be prescribed a powerful stimulant to normalize them. A great many of these boys will suffer serious side effects from those drugs. The shocking truth is that many of those diagnoses are wrong, and that most of these boys are being drugged for no good reason simply for being boys it's time we recognize this as a crisis so you know i've got the article here in front of me um you know it it was basically published in um 2014 so between 2014 and today you know how much of that statement do you think still holds true are are we still in your opinion going i mean is the first reflex to go straight to prescribing stimulants
0: so I think you're seeing less of it uh, a little bit. I, I do think that, I mean, that article blew up, right? I mean, it was it was a big deal when it first came out uh, to the point where it is probably uh, not referred to me because at this point, most people know that I've read it because I've talked about it so many times, but but I'll be in a conversation with someone and be like, oh yeah, I read about that, the drug, right? So that, that has happened a lot. Um, that article had a big part of it, but also the work of some really incredible people Uh, I always give a shout out to a guy that I admire by the name of Carl Hart, uh, who's a researcher and the head of psychology, I believe, but don't quote me on that, at Columbia, um, who is a a guy who's just changing the way we view drugs and drug users and drug use, a really incredible human being. Uh, Another guy by the name of Johan Hari, who wrote one of my favorite books of all time and definitely my favorite book when it came to drug use. Uh, and that is called "Chasing the Scream." Um, and, and then Maya Salovitz, uh, another incredible author. But th- the point is that we're really changing the way people view drug drugs and drug use, right? Mm-hmm. When I was coming up, and we had, pro- and, and I'm a millennial for for those that uh, didn't I didn't say my my age earlier, or maybe I did. Um, we, you know, we got Dare, right? We got Just Say No. We got all that BS, mm-hmm. and. At the same time that I was proud of my quote unquote sobriety, right? Because when I was going through middle school and high school, I I used substances in middle school and then I quit in high school to be an athlete. I was a baseball player and I was so proud of my sobriety. I would go to parties and I wouldn't drink. I wouldn't do drugs. Everybody around me was. and I was like, yeah, I'm sober. And yet I was taking more drugs than anyone else there.
1: Right. Mm. There's perception. Yeah,
0: exactly. And that perception is changing because we're now seeing these uh, epidemic epidemics of, of these you know, prescription pills. I, I think the best example I can give that i love to give, because I think it's so incredible, is that on every college campus, you could set foot on a college campus right now and within minutes have Adderall. I mean, it's, it's everywhere, right? And it's accepted, mm-hmm. you know? People need to study, they're going to take Adderall, right? The thing that most people don't realize <laughs> is that if you change one tiny molecule in Adderall it's meth it is the exact same mm-hmm. drug I mean they're not even cousins they're sisters they're they're that close and yet if we had you know three out of every four college students you ubiquitously using meth we'd have marches in the streets we would have drug uh, right. uh, uh, yeah. officers on every corner and yet because it's a prescription drug called Adderall nobody nobody seems to care. And so these are the perceptions that are starting to change. And I think that as as you beautifully put, as the, the my generation, the generation after us starts to, to come up, we are going to see a lot of different changes. But what I love to say is that my generation is the why generation, not not as in you know the why, the, the but as in WHY in that we are willing to ask the question of why yes. you yes. know our our boomer parents, they did things like dare like just say no and we went wait this doesn't make any sense you're drinking at home and i'm I'm being told that you know one puff of marijuana is going to kill me that doesn't make any sense why Mm -hmm. why are you doing this um so i i I think that we're starting to see that change is in the perception and with the perception comes realistic change as soon as you know, uh, the, the, the boomer generation steps aside, which is uh, they're, they're
1: fighting, man. They're
0: holding on to this thing as long as they possibly can.
1: You know, another thing that that kind of struck me in reading the drugging of the American boy is just the way that ADHD has been diagnosed. So they cite how back in 1997 that about three percent of American school children had received the diagnosis and that uh Year over year, it started to um, in, increase. You know, three percent, and then in uh, 2003, 2007, I think cases were increasing at a rate of 5.5 percent per year. In 2013, um, that jumped to 11 percent, and then later on up to 16 percent. So, I mean that that begs the question: What's going on here? Is there is this condition just? kind of like exacerbating uh, across more and more people or are we just getting quick to diagnose? Like, what are you, what's your takeaway on that?
0: I I think it it sort of mirrors, uh, you know, that, that argument about autism. Oh, you know, things are causing autism. We didn't have autism in the fifties. No, no, you did. It just wasn't diagnosed. I mean, this is what we're seeing now with ADHD, except the pendulum has swung too far in the opposite direction. And, 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 you know, to sort of echo something I said earlier, I don't think, I, while I do think that this is incredibly overdiagnosed, I don't think as well to go hand in hand with that, that every person who is diagnosed with ADHD needs medication. This isn't life-saving. This isn't the, this, the consequence. Like, I wouldn't have died. And if you actually look at my trajectory, my question is, would I really have been better off if if nobody had given me that medication? And and i tend to think the answer is yes obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's hard to go back and change that thing those kind of things but i i, I do believe that not only is it over prescribed or, or, or overdiagnosed, excuse me but you also have an over prescribing of the medication for people who really do have adhd um and and, and those two things go go very closely together
1: yeah, and the article also talks about the misdiagnoses. Um, how you know? I mean, while the percentage of it may be you know small, it still is equating to like millions of kids. So, mm-hmm. um, I think you know there was reference to six point four million um, boys that were diagnosed with ADHD that uh, that that didn't really fit the criteria and were still prescribed that medication so you know very interesting article and you know among you know of the uh, people that you were Referencing and citing earlier as your kind of mentors or inspiration, we're gonna get we're gonna get those folks listed on our website so that you know people that want to follow up and and you know read what you're reading and and uh, you know listen to who, who you're listening to. We'll get those uh, those links out there. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about your experience with ADHD on your work and career because you know I mean you would think that uh, it's it might be hard to you know you know, be following deadlines or, you know, kind of being able to focus on one thing at a time when your mind is just kind of wanting to to be exposed to a lot of different things. So give us your experience on how um, having ADHD has impacted your career.
0: Yeah, I think I've been really lucky uh, in that in that sense, because I've had a lot of really understanding um, supervisors, bosses, uh, leaders, Mm -hmm. Uh, there have been a couple of times where that hasn't been the case and those have not gone well. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, but those, I mean, those are really dwarfed by the couple of times that I've had really understanding leaders. I I've worked for myself for the last, you know, going on four years. So uh, in that sense um, you know, uh, there's always that drive to, to when you, when you're your own boss to, to, you know, hit your own deadlines and do the things that you know you need to do. But the the last job that I had before I left to work for myself was uh, running political campaigns. And my boss there was super understanding because he saw that it actually made me better. Mm. Um, You know, political campaigns like producing a podcast have nine different things that need to be done at every moment. Uh, You know, you've got three different people who are waiting on your phone call to set up events and, you know people who all the volunteers and i mean yada 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 right uh and while doing that i wasn't just working on one i was working on three i was running three campaigns at one time so i i thrived in that i i I loved having all these different balls in the air that i had to keep juggling the things that made it possible was organization i i I'm looking at you on my screen right here. And on my second screen next to it is Trello, which has all of the, the tasks that I'm currently working on in front of me, mm-hmm. because I'm that person who, if it's not in front of me, it flat out does not exist. It, sure. it, it's just, it's just <laughs> there is nothing in my world that is not currently right here in front of me. So uh, that is a key part was learning how to, how to be organized and uh i am again very thankful that that for the most part i had uh supervisors who understood that
1: well i mean it shines a light on you know empathetic leaders who who understand that understands people are people they're going to come into their role with you know all sorts of other you know other stuff that they bring into their work and um you know the the leaders that kind of recognize okay i mean this you know person's got this you know set of things that they deal with. This other person's got, you know, another way of kind of dealing with things. It just takes that empathetic person to just be able to somewhat put themselves in your shoes to just, you know, know how to kind of motivate you and, and you know, also um, help you enjoy what you're doing. I think uh, definitely, you know, we want to shine the light on those types of, of leaders. So... You know the next question i think we'll kind of wrap up with this one is back to the topic of drug addiction there's an article I, I read on drug addiction and shame and so you know tell us about your experience there because you know i've spoken a lot about shame and other kind of facets and how harmful it can be so when it comes to drug addiction like where where's that mindset and and you know what what's it like to kind of work through that uh, that's a huge one, and,
0: and and you know that article we were talking about, that that, that post that I did today for International Overdose Awareness Day is all about that, um, specifically asking everybody to truly examine their own role in this. Because uh, I didn't put this in that post, but I've said it countless times before. Um, I was guilty of this. I realized five years into recovery, over over five years, um, that when I thought of the word addict. Right, which is a a, a, a um, noun that we're trying not to use anymore because you know it takes away the person at the center of that struggle. I'm yeah. uh, trying to say, you know, person struggling with addiction or a person with addiction. Right? Um, when I thought of that word addict, I didn't picture myself. Right, and I had lived with this, um, and yet I still saw myself as the exception, not the rule, because that stereotype has been so deeply ground into us that both intentionally and unintentionally um, you know I keep referencing Dare uh, which was a really disastrous program that is for some reason is coming back um, you know we love <laughs> oh, okay. a good reboot uh, yeah. but at the same time they're not always good and this is a terrible one mostly wow. because they knew Dare didn't work at the beginning like their own internal papers that got leaked showed that but um, they're, it's coming back which is, which is awful um, you know, these were the things that really ground that shame into us, and then unintentionally you have movies, TV, the media, that that uh, too often are just repeating what they've been told by people who, quite frankly, don't know what they're talking about, right? Um, you know, there's that old quote, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, when you're when you're referencing law enforcement, you're only going to hear a very small sliver of the story. You're not hearing the health, you're not hearing the empathy. You're hearing the law breaking. You're hearing the, the, the things they're encountering. And that's not a representation of our community. So I, I am all about trying to change that mindset, change that stereotype, yes. and helping people understand that, like, there's a reason that I stay quiet over five years into recovery. Like that moment was such a big change for me. I realized I was part of the problem. And I also realized like n- someone asked me this not long after I, I, I stood on stage for the first time in 2015 and told about 150 people that I was in recovery. And most of these people uh, about half the room uh, knew me personally. And, mm-hmm. and of those, let's say 75, 80 people maybe five knew my story. Uh, And so many were just blown away. And after that night, someone asked me like, well, why did you stay silent? Right. Did someone tell you, you know, don't talk about this. I said, no one needed to tell me it's the way we talk about people like me. Right. It's the way that the movies and TV and media show people like me, you know, every person who ever struggles with addiction, in, the, in movies and in TV is Robert Downey Jr., right, is is Charlie Sheen, these mm-hmm. these examples of people who went off the deep end, right? Now, obviously, Robert Downey Jr. Is, is an incredible story of someone who came back from that, but that is a small sliver, you know, that would be like showing every single person with cancer as the emaciated person laying in bed, just skin and bones. Is that Someone, yeah, of course, and it's horrible. Like, I feel so horrible for those people, but it's also a small percentage. There are people walking around fighting cancer today that look just like you and me, and and yet, you know, that's what we do with people with addictions. We just show that person on the corner. You know, uh, the, the the example I give right now uh when we're when I'm asked to talk about this is Delonte West. If anybody knows that name, uh former basketball star, played for my 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 Boston Celtics, who I love near and dear. Uh, was a teammate of LeBron's in Cleveland, uh, mm-hmm. NBA champion. Uh, this guy is now unfortunately homeless and, 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 and struggling with addiction. He's been in and out of, of rehab. And every time someone drives by him on the freeway, they, they post a picture on Instagram and it, and it blows up, it goes viral. And people want to use that as our example of addiction. It is a horrible story. I, I feel mm-hmm. so bad for Delonte West, but that is such a small, extreme uh, example Uh, and it doesn't really capture the rest of the community. So that was my post today was examine your own biases and understand that what you've been taught both
1: intentionally and unintentionally is probably wrong. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, thank you so much for, you know, what you're doing, standing up for issues around ADHD, um, you know, drug abuse and suicide. And, uh, I just, can't commend you highly enough, um, for being vulnerable and putting your story out there because, you know, just breaking down the barriers to, you know, where perhaps in the past there was, there was less of a willingness of people to, to open up and share the stories that that's, that's where the magic and the healing is. And so I want to thank you for being my guest here today and sharing your story. And, and hopefully we have some listeners who are, who are going to be positively affected by that. So again, thank you, Jay. Well, thank
0: you so much for having me. And yes, any listeners, if you have questions, if you're struggling yourself and you don't know who to talk to, please reach out. I'm always here and I always offer that up. Uh, This is what I do. I love talking to people. You know, when I'm not here talking to awesome people like you, I'm literally doing this hands-on in my community. So always here to chat, always helpful, always happy to be helpful in pointing people towards the resources.
1: Yeah, thanks, Jay. Jay founded his company Choose Your Struggle in 2015 with two distinct goals, ending stigma and promoting honest and fact-based education around the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, as well as drug use and policy. A fervent believer in radical honesty and the simple fact that neither struggle nor recovery should be treated as a one-size-fits-all experience, Jay uses his voice and his platforms to educate, entertain, and empower. Jay launched the Choose Your Struggle podcast in early 2020 and is already in the top 0.2% of worldwide listenership. The show combines vulnerable storytelling and expert education around the topics of mental health, substance misuse and recovery, as well as drug use and policy. The podcast was so successful, Jay launched the Shameless Podcast Network in January of 2021 with the goal of helping other podcasts destroy their own stigmas. You can read more about Jay on our website, eIQmediaLLC.com slash The Change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a story to share about making a difference in the lives of people you lead, or if you want to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at change at eIQmediaLLC.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by eIQ Media, LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more.